1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenithan.
0: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, let's take a minute to just contemplate the mysteries of the universe.
1: All right, let's do it. Okay, this is getting scary. Let's talk about some movies. (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) Listeners, we are going to be talking about two very philosophically-freighted and interesting movies on this week's episode. First up is Kogunada's After Yang, a story about an android, his memories, and the way that he affected the family he left behind.
0: And then for our watch list section, um, we're going to be watching After Life by Hirokazu Koreda, which is about many deceased people and the memories of the life that they left behind.
1: We're going to be coming after a lot of things on episode 324 of Seeing and Believing. Come on, Yang. What are you doing? Come, come on. What happened to Yang? I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. This has this happened before? No. We're not gonna buy another sibling for Mika.
0: It is an interior core problem.
1: I need your permission to break open the core. We've always known that some bots
0: are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house
1: anymore. Yes, we're here on episode three twenty four, and it feels a little bit whiplashy, I guess, to be going from the 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 bombs and the <laughs> the punching and the superhero action of the Batman last week mm-hmm. to some pretty heady, ter- heady territory for this week's episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I don't know. Hopefully, we don't end up fighting over these particular movies either, but we'll we'll see. I I,
1: I mean, if you if you end up uh, expressing dislike for Afterlife, we we might... There might be we some, might have some problems. There might be some fisticuffs here in the <laughs> recording studio, listeners. That second segment, we are going to be talking about a Hirokazu kore film, and you all know my feelings about kore I'm a big fanboy. I picked Afterlife for Sarah to catch up with and for us to talk about in the second half of the show. But here in the first half of the show, we are going to be talking about a movie that is every bit as uh, as heady, philosophical, uh, ambitious. Mm-hmm. It asks a lot of big questions. So uh, let's jump right into it. This is the follow-up from filmmaker Koganada to his wonderful film Columbus mm-hmm. uh, titled After Yang. And after Yang, a young daughter's beloved companion, an android named Yang, malfunctions suddenly, and the father, played by Colin Farrell, searches for a way to repair him. As Jake, the father, seeks various avenues to bring Yang back, he discovers that Yang has been hiding a surprising inner world of history, memories, and thoughts, which lead Jake to reevaluate not only his relationship with Yang, but also his relationship with his wife, daughter, everyone around him, and maybe even the nature of humanity and sentience itself. So that's a a pretty short synopsis, but uh, it's... Uh, a little bit deceptive because there is a lot going on in mm. this film. So I guess maybe to jump in before we you know dive into the deep end with all the different questions this film is asking, I, I want to kind of take the temperature of the room a little bit, Sarah, and uh, ask you you know what you thought of Coganada's previous film, Columbus and how you see uh, this new film following on from that one.
0: Oh, man. Um, Columbus is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, Wow. love Columbus, rewatch it at least once a year. Um, it's very like quiet and contemplative. And uh, obviously, it's a movie that's about architecture in Columbus, Indiana. And I kind of think of Koganada as being a very structural filmmaker. He's very purposeful about the way he builds his shots, his sets, his scenery, like the way that he's laying out all of the information that he's giving you. And quite often, what's important is what is left unsaid as well as what is said. Um, and this feels like a really big step for him as a feature director I honestly couldn't tell you if I liked this movie more or the same as Columbus probably because it's been too soon since I've seen it Um, but I adored after Yang. Um, I just, I started watching it and I could feel myself falling in love with the world. Um, and the way that he shows these characters and their interiority and their relationships with, um, their own surroundings. Like there's still a little bit of that, um, architecture bent to it as well. So, um, Kevin, I know you're an Ozu guy. Mm -hmm. I picked up on some Ozu in this one, um, did uh, Koganada's work work for you in this movie? Oh,
1: man. Well, I'm glad that you, you brought up Ozu because we are definitely going to be talking about the Ozu uh, om- homages a little bit later on because I just think it's fantastic. And I mean... If it wasn't obvious already, I also really liked this film. I good
0: <laughs> Well, watching
1: it, I was thinking about, you know, that quote from Roger Ebert where he says, you know, no bad no good movie is ever too long and no bad movie is ever short enough. Mm-hmm. And that really applies to this movie. I when it when the credits rolled, I could hardly believe it it had been an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. It was just so beguiling, so easy to sink into this world and just be swept up in all the different uh avenues of inquiry i guess that koganata brings to the subject matter it's just it's a it's a deceptively rich film for one that's so brief Mm -hmm. and on its surface so simple uh just it's got a very small cast it's more or less just about memory and just how not only Yang remembers the things that that have happened to him, but also the way the various characters remember their own past as well. Mm -hmm. And I just... I fell fell in love with this movie is is a good (laughs) description for it. I thought it was absolutely tremendous and I can't wait to see it again.
0: Yeah. Me neither. I, I'm sort of counting down the hours until I can watch it again because that, that's the plan for me. So um, I'm curious to know like what you thought about the different performances because I mean, we're both familiar with Colin Farrell. He's been working for a really long time, um, but there were a couple of performances in this movie that kind of felt like a revelation for me because I hadn't really seen anybody else's work. So Jodie Turner Smith um, as Kyra, uh, who plays uh, Jake's wife. Um, and then uh, Malaya Emma Chanjarujaya um, as Mika, their daughter. Um, we've seen a couple of movies with like really good child performances in here, and I feel like she really did a good job in this one too. Um, I, I don't know if it worked for you necessarily. I
1: mean, she's it is a an excellent performance. Uh, for me, the the one that I gravitated to most strongly was the title role. I think mm. Justin H. Min as Yang is so. He's so wonderful in this film, and I think a lot of it is because he plays it so. He plays his role so naturally. Mm -hmm. I guess Uh, it's it's tempting when I I feel like it would be tempting for an actor playing an android to kind of lean a little bit into this faint Mm alienness of of the character a little bit. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I I adore Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina partly because. She does bring this kind of this faint aloofness and uh, unknowability to to that role that I think really works for that film. For this film, though, because it's so humanistic and because Koganada really plays up the juxtaposition of the natural world and the advanced technology, so this is set in. An, in a near future, where uh, there's obviously kind of the trappings of self-driving cars mm-hmm. and gleaming metal spires off in the distance and advanced technology, being that there are androids in this world, but they're all juxtaposed next to greenery, The uh, the self-driving car that... Uh, jake and his family take around the city uh, has plants growing in the back it's a great touch there's a wonderful scene where yang speaks to uh, the young daughter mika about grafted limbs on trees and they're walking through an orchard Mm -hmm. and i think those two things it's very intentional koganaz really trying to not play up the the chrome and metal of the future but the the growing things in humanity of the future. And that extends to Yang's performance as well, and just the way he plays him as somebody who's just very simple in of ways Not simple intellectually, but just simple in that he he just takes the world as it comes and responds and it's just, it's a wonderful performance. He
0: is like, I I feel like that. (laughs) He is. He is like, that's, Mm -hmm. that's who he is. Yeah. Um, I feel like up until this point, my high water mark for, uh, humans playing androids has been Michael Fassbender in the alien movies. Like this Mm -hmm. is not a secret to anybody who knows me. I (laughs) love those movies and I especially love. He's great. uh, Oh, oh my gosh. Especially in alien covenant. Um, But Justin H. Min is doing something very different here, I think. There's a little bit less stiltedness, like there's no stiffness to him at all. It's just he's telling the truth and then that's it. And then there's not going to be like anything else, like no other artifice on top of it. Um, And there's very little artifice in this movie as well, I think. Um, Like you mentioned, there's not a ton of technology. I don't think we see a single like floating glowing screen at all in the Mm -hmm. entire movie. Like whenever somebody is doing a video call with them, there's just a little bit of a shift in aspect ratio. And then that's it. It's a lovely touch. um, And it feels like a really good way to tell a story that is very clearly like 20 minutes into the future, maybe this future is never going to happen, but it also doesn't feel automatically dated at the same time. The focus is less on the technology of the science fiction and more on the people who are living in this situation that that technology has afforded them. And that's my very favorite kind of sci-fi. <laughs> so this
1: is this is where we're going to get into the, the call-outs to Ozu mm-hmm. because one of the, the signature devices that Ozu brings is... Uh, shooting his actors uh, in, you know, placing them in the center of the frame in in Academy ratio, and uh, shooting them straight on. So essentially, the uh, the actor is addressing the audience. He's staring, he or she is staring directly into the camera and just speaking very matter of factly. And there's there's no you know angling of the camera. It's all just very plain and matter of fact. And for me, that lends Ozu's films this this wonderful emotional intimacy mm-hmm. where there's, there's nothing getting between the audience and, and the actors that, and, and the character that the actor is playing their performance of that role. And the way that, um, Koganada frames these video calls mm-hmm. is exactly the way that Ozu frames those, those actors in his own films. And again, that's Koganada using, um, uh, a a scene that's all about kind of technological mediation. These characters are separated by by space. They're speaking to each other through a screen, mm-hmm. and yet the way he shoots it isn't you know through a holographic display and kind of keeping the camera out of remove. He places us literally as the characters would be experiencing it, just talking directly to each other, uh, and and there's no partition between them in in the logic. And I think that's just that's just a wonderful way of Koganai using his. Ozu influences to make technology, his film's technolo- use of technology feel new.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I feel like he's kind of emphasizing the distance between those two characters. Like those not, conversations they, they don't share he, a frame. Yeah. Well, and they, those characters are at a remove from each other, especially towards the beginning of the movie, which is when these conversations are happening more frequently. I feel like you get a little bit more of the, we're having a video call, like... I'm in one place, you're in another. We need to communicate with each other and we're going to have a moment of connection. But there's still that distance or remove there, I think. Um, and I think it's smart that Koganada puts the audience in the position of each of these characters as they're having that conversation as well. Like we're almost the intermediaries between the two of them as they're having that conversation too.
1: Yeah, and there, there's all sorts of other Ozu um, call-outs through Elsewhere in the film there, oh, you know, yeah. there's, there's very little uh, camera movement. Mm-hmm. The, the camera is often very stationary and just allows us to take in these, um, these surroundings. Um, there are a couple of places where Coconata employs kind of a jump cut where he, he's filming a dialogue scene between Yang and one of the other characters. Mm-hmm. And he does this thing where he, he essentially presents the conversation in in multiple different ways but rather than you know moving the camera to emphasize a different angle or kind of doing a shot reverse shot thing he layers the the conversation over each other so mm-hmm. uh, a character will say something and then we'll hear on the on in voiceover the character saying the same thing but in a slightly different way mm-hmm. or we'll we'll see the character saying one thing and we'll get two shots of the character uh, from different angles saying that and there's no movement there and i think it's a a wonderful way of of him just bring this meditative aspect to these conversations and emphasizing obviously the malleable nature of memory itself which we'll get into oh yeah um but that's that's he but he situates that within kind of this ozu like aesthetic that I think just works tremendously
0: yeah there's a lot of very careful attention to detail too I think and it's not just the delivery of the lines like occasionally the way that someone is looking will be a little bit different Um, I've never seen anybody like present memory quite like this before in a movie and it's the way that I think like usually if I'm remembering something I'll go over that thing multiple times like in a couple of seconds and then think well did it really happen that way or did it really happen this way Um, It's a really smart way to get at um, just the way that memory shifts even as you're remembering it. Like when you're remembering something, you're sort of changing your memory at the same time um, is, is how I understand the science behind that. And the fact that he's managed to show that and show characters like coming to grips with the fact that they're remembering something that they know probably didn't quite happen the way that they're remembering it. It's just it's so smart and it's so empathetic. Um and I just i i'm I don't know, I'm taken by it
1: <laughs> and so let's talk a little bit let's dig more into the way this film uses memory because it's mm-hmm. not just interested in the experiential dimension of memory just in in the way that you or I might experience remembering something. Mm-hmm. it's also interested in what memory means for personhood, mm-hmm. um, what it what having memories uh, uh, means for our internal landscape. One of my favorite aspects of this film is how. Uh, so uh, when when Yang malfunctions. Uh, Jake takes him to uh, kind of a specialist who allows him to extract Yang's memories, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. It's it's unusual for an android to be able to make memories in the first place. But uh, this, this technician allows Jake to extract the memories and kind of watch them through the special pair of glasses that he puts on. Mm-hmm. And the way that that's represented on film is uh, Colin Farrell puts on the glasses... And then seeing through his eyes, we essentially are seeing a constellation. Yes. And every star is a different memory and the different memories cluster together into what look like galaxies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Koganata kind of allows us to zoom from one star to the next and sort of experience just this really brief, you know, four or five second snippet of, of Yang's life and uh, allow us to, you know, like Colin Farrell's character, say, repeat and kind of see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, zoom in and notice a certain detail or maybe just pause it and think about what we've just seen. And the way that that um, changes, not just the way the audience thinks of Yang, mm-hmm. but also the way that uh, we and and Jake f- feel about Yang as a person, how we stop seeing him as a an appliance mm-hmm. and start seeing him as, as somebody who has this entire personal history is really subtle and really well done
0: yeah yeah so um a couple of things there too because yang's memories are presented a little bit differently than human memories are as well like there's another aspect ratio shift his are bigger um that constellation is also in a very strict grid like if, if you're um Wandering around through those constellations, you can kind of see like lines just going off into the distance, and they seem like they're going forever. And then Yang's memories repeat, but they never change. Like there's, it's always the same five seconds, as opposed to five seconds and then a pause and then a slightly different repeat. But at the same time, it's very clear that Yang is also a person who has things that are very important to him, and they may not necessarily be something that a human being would have thought of as being important. So um, a few of his memories almost serve as like, um, Miyazaki calls these pillow shots, I think, where...
1: That's that's also a big Ozu, Ozu thing as well. <laughs> as
0: well. Um, so um, there'll be just a, a shot of like laundry hanging somewhere. Um, and it's just five seconds of like laundry. And you can see the shadows and you can kind of just get a sense for the space. And then it's over. And then you move on to the next thing. And after... We see Yang's memories of those. Um, The movie also takes a little bit more time with those pillow shots as well. Like There was a repeated motif of laundry hanging um, down a corridor somewhere. And the first time it was repeated, not in Yang's memories, I thought I was going to cry because the moment was the movie taking a moment to say Yang put his fingerprints on this family and now they're kind of starting to see the world through his eyes as well Um, in a way that just feels really... Gentle and uninsistent, and, and it doesn't really call attention to itself. And I think that's the most loving thing that you can do in a movie is is to show something and show that attention and not necessarily be like showy about it, but to say like I'm paying attention to this and it's important. Well,
1: that's that's something else that I and I I'm, I don't have to tell you this. That that's something else that Columbus <laughs> yes does really well is. You know the the whole movie is about those characters kind of slowing down and just not worrying about moving on to the next experience or reaching a destination, but more about just kind of sitting and contemplating something. Mm-hmm. And we see that preoccupation, that interest of Coconata's in this film as well. And it, I mean, to me, I, I like Columbus quite a bit. I think this is even even a step above Columbus. I think mm. this movie is just the ambition that it shows and the way that Koganah is able to bring that interest of his and 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 um, bring it into an exploration of not just a specific place and these specific characters, but kind of questioning the nature of existence, the nature of memory. Um, not necessarily... And the other... I'm sorry. The other thing that that really... I think is interesting about this is it's not really about what it means to be human, which yeah. is a cliche of kind of movies about androids. Oh yeah. And one character, uh Haley Lou Richardson's uh character even calls out specifically. She says, what's so great about being human? Why is everyone, you know, th- why do people always think that robots always want to be mm-hmm. human? like, what's the big deal about that? And that Koganaz very in- intentionally like pulling up s- us up short and say, well, what is so great about being human? What?" What else can we be interested in other than ourselves? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think it's that interest in others and not just ourselves. Like you say something like contemplative, and I think that that almost uh, implies like there's a little bit of navel gaziness to it. And this movie is not that at all. Like it's, yeah. it's it is not interested in just introspection for introspection's sake. It's interested in pausing and taking a breath and then looking out at what other people are going through and what they're thinking about um, and what they're going to find important about that encounter. Um, and it kind of made me think about how like af- after you lose someone, um, because this family is also going through the process of like losing Yang. And I, I hate saying that a movie is about grief because it's, that's also kind of a cliche at this point in time is that um, every superhero movie is also about grief and trauma or whatever. Um, but you're watching this family sort of process their sense of loss around Yang. And then at the same time, as they're learning things about him through his memory bank, they're also realizing like, Oh, this is another person who had this whole other life. And there are things about him that he never told us. And all of those things were also important as well. Like there's, there's this whole other sense of like a constellation or a galaxy of like other, like, Experiences that Yang has lived, and just because they weren't shared with this family, doesn't mean they're not important.
1: I think they even uh, call that out specifically towards the end. Uh, Jake says uh, to to Kira that um, his existence he, he, matters, his existence mattered and not just us, and not just us. And that I think is kind of a thesis statement for the entire film, it, not just in as it relates to Yang, but there's all sorts of other things that Koganata is bringing to bear using that theme. There's kind of the subplot around clones mm-hmm. and how uh, Colin Farrell's character kind of finds clones a little bit creepy. And then he's in conversation with a, a young woman who is a clone. she She's obviously very standoff. She says, you know, we're we're people too. Mm-hmm. You know, clones are people as well. Mm-hmm. You realize that, right? Yeah. Um there there's uh you know obviously the the reason that this family got brought Yang into their lives in the first place is because um their young daughter they adopted her from China and so they brought Yang in to sort of allow her to connect with her heritage that you know that they're not able to give her themselves and there's this talk about adoption and Mm -hmm. how even though she's no longer living with her birth parents they matter as well they're part of her as well Mm -hmm. she's part of the family of of her current family as well it all matters Mm -hmm. and i i I think it's enchanting that this film is able to have such a life-affirming way of looking at people and experiences while not feeling didactic about it. It's, yeah. it's kind of miraculous he's able to do that.
0: And that's one thing that I was worried about going in was that it was going to be a little bit didactic or it was going to center yang's character as being like a lesson to be learned or um as being like a catalyst for change within the family or, and or it, being
1: like so no like so pure and noble and beyond us yeah that and, he doesn't
0: need to be a real boy or anything right. like that like and i can i can think of nothing less interesting and the fact that this movie is able to pull off having yang be his own character and also not be human and also be humanized all at the same time like it's it's an incredible balancing act and i've I've never seen anything quite like it
1: well that's it i have not seen anything quite like it either i'm gonna if i see any movies better than after yang this year Mm -hmm. what a year 2022 is going to (laughs) be for sure listeners that is our rapturous review of after Yang. It is currently in limited release in theaters. You should also be able to find it uh, on Showtime. I believe mm-hmm. it'll be streaming through them. So whatever way you can find to catch up with this film, we definitely recommend that you do. Mm-hmm. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about what I think is another pretty special th- film here in the second half of the show, Afterlife. Listeners, uh, that was uh, quite a conversation. I, I, I could probably talk about After Game for the entirety of this episode. Oh yeah, um, just
0: get me going about <laughs> There's
1: I, I mean, I just, I can't get enough of it, and it's, it's a, a really rich film. But we'll have to pa- press pause here for a second, listeners, to let you know if you haven't heard already that we do have a Patreon. Mm-hmm at Seeing and Believing. it's uh You can find it at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Uh, this is a way for any listeners, if, you, if you've been listening for a long time or if you've been listening for a short time and you just really want to help us keep the lights on, help us uh, keep putting out these great films, help us introduce uh, new films or celebrate great new films with you, Uh, That's the way to do it. You can pledge at levels from anywhere from $3 a month to $25 a month. There are lots of different reward tiers. Uh, We like to plug our $8 and $10 a month tiers. Those, those have been pretty popular of late and you get some pretty cool stuff. Mm -hmm. You get, uh, a uh, personalized list of recommendations. You get the ability to dictate one movie that Sarah and I have to review on the air. Yes, it's good
0: stuff. Oh yeah, it's great stuff. Um, you should definitely uh, pledge at that level, and then pick <laughs> a movie that you think that Kevin and I will disagree on, so that we can uh, so that we can fight about it. Yeah, you
1: know, you know, get some get some sparks going on up here. I would not recommend picking a movie that both of us will dislike, but yeah. you know, that might have its own kind of schadenfreude appeal as well if that's what you're into. So whatever floats your boat, we're happy to help you float it as long as you help keep us afloat as well. Yeah
0: pick a pick a movie that you know that I will like and that Kevin will dislike um, so that I'll be right <laughs> is what I'm trying to say here.
1: Oh listeners uh, that that's a great way to to uh, spend a few bucks every month I think that I think so anyway um, but that's one way sports. If you don't feel like uh, supporting us financially, though, one other way you can support us is just by letting us know your thoughts. Mm -hmm. We love uh, reading the feedback that we get from you every week. And we got quite a few uh, things to share this week from listeners who wrote in about about the Batman and uh, Cyrano, actually. So, uh, Sarah, you actually posed a question on Twitter uh, earlier about, you know, what asking what other people who saw the Batman thought about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just curious to know. Um, and it seems like a really great way to continue the conversation. Like, I really enjoy talking about movies with you. I also really like uh, continuing that conversation with our listeners as well. Um, So Dave Lester uh, chimed in and had an entire Twitter thread. Um, I'm not going to read the entire thing because I won't do it full justice, but um, he had a lot of really uh, good thoughts about um, just how rage-filled Robert Pattinson's version of the Batman is, uh, which I really, really appreciated. Um, And then Eli Price also chimed in uh, and said that he really loved. Loved the movie, too, um, and appreciated that Reeves trusts his audience to not have to be shown um, the origins of Batman slash Bruce Wayne. Like, we don't see any pearls hitting an alleyway no, no floor. No slow
1: motion pearls. Which I really,
0: that. really like. Uh, thank you uh, to Matt Reeves for that. Um, and then Eli also had a, a good insight about how there's a late scene in the movie that sort of functions as a baptism for Batman, like switching modes from vengeance towards something greater, which I really appreciated. It was a good insight.
1: Yeah, it was good insight too. The uh the I, I know the the sequence that that Eli is talking about there, and I hadn't thought about it as a baptism. Same. But that was a really interesting perspective on it. And that's one great thing about getting listener feedback is you guys help us see movies in a new way too. So that's really great. Mm -hmm. We also heard from Christy Olson. She was just catching up with our uh, episode 322 a couple weeks ago about Cyrano. Mm -hmm. And Christy Olson, as a big musical theater fan, had a lot of thoughts about that. She writes in... I'm a big musical theater fan. I enjoyed Cyrano, but agree with Sarah that somehow the sum of the parts didn't quite add up to all the elements needed for a musical. I liked the songs, but never quite felt some of the payoff I was hoping for. I'm having a bit of a hard time putting my finger on it, exactly, but I think I wanted some musical numbers that felt a bit bigger and more committed to the musical theater elements. Sarah mentioned more dance numbers, and I agree. It felt like some of them didn't realize they were in a musical somehow. The number that felt the most musical to me was I Need More. Haley Bent's performed as fully committed and very good. Mm-hmm. But it's Roxanne's second I Want song of the show, Sarah pointed out that the movie is almost all I Want songs, which means it doesn't hit all the emotional beats needed to make it fully work as a musical. So while I enjoyed the film and admire the audacity and boldness of some of the choices it made, it doesn't fully work for me as a musical. Thanks for those thoughts, Christy. Uh, those are some really good ones. And, you know, I, I made sure that we, we had to uh, read some feedback in that. Let Sarah, you know, know that she was, she was right about some things. Please
0: continue to stroke my ego. Yes. Like, <laughs> as,
1: as we, we, we mentioned before, that's always a good way to, to go. And, you know, I can't fully disagree with, with Christy's thoughts on Cyrano. Mm-hmm. Even though i maybe you liked it a little bit better than, than you did. I agree that, it's not quite there. And, you know, I just wish it were. But.
0: Yeah, same. I, I would have loved it if it had been there. It just wasn't there.
1: Thanks again to all the listeners who, who wrote in with your thoughts. Uh, any of you who have any thoughts about After Yang, Afterlife, or anything that you've been watching recently, please write in to let us know about it. We love hearing from you on Twitter at C Believe Pod, or you can always send us an email at seeing and believing, capc at gmail.com.
0: All right, listeners, um, we're going to go over to the watch list segment, um, which is where one of us shows the Other Host, uh, a movie that The Other Host has not necessarily seen before. So for this week, uh, Kevin picked uh, Afterlife by Hirokazu Koreda, um, which is it's, it's a fascinating movie um, and, and not quite like anything else I've, I've seen before, which I which I appreciated very much. So um, in Afterlife. The souls of the recently deceased arrive at sort of a a counseling facility. It almost looks like an old school um, where they must choose one memory from the life that they lived. And then the counselors who are at this facility then do their best to reconstruct or recreate those memories and then sort of screen them as, as movies at the end of a week. Um, and then once the deceased have seen those memories, have have lived them out one last time, then they are permitted to then move on. So, Kevin, um, after Yang has quite a lot to do with <laughs> the memories of a deceased being. Um did you know that that was a connection when you picked Afterlife? For so this
1: week? I, w- I was very pleased with how things worked out. I did not know that um, when I. A lot of the time, I like to go into movies like After Yang, knowing as little about it as possible, just so I can kind of mm-hmm. experience it fresh, without with as few exp- uh, expectations as possible. So I didn't know that After Yang was about memories. I just knew that it was about androids, and I. The reason I picked Afterlife was, number one, I'm a big Corey Ada fanboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I feel like Afterlife is one of his lesser-seen films. It recently got a, a Criterion Collection release, but it's not on the level of something like you know Shoplifters or some of his more recent films have gotten a lot more attention, at least uh, over here stateside. So I, I just love sharing some of his lesser-seen works with people. And I did think that you know, Corey Ada has a vibe that's very similar to Koganada. They both have, mm. uh, have strong Ozu influences. They both are very warm, humanistic filmmakers. And I just thought that would be a, a nice pairing as well. Um, so imagine my, my happiness when I watched <laughs> after Yang and thinking, this is actually a perfect pairing with afterlife because they're both about the nature of memory, what our memories mean to us. And, uh, how they affect our sense of self and our sense of personhood. So I mean it, I I couldn't be happier about the the dovetailing themes here, but I'm really I mean it seems like you liked it, but I, I want to hear you say it. What what did you think of this film?
0: Yeah, I I liked it quite a bit. I don't know that I liked it quite as much as After Yang, um but that's also a very very high bar to hit. Um and that's definitely not a knock on After Life at al- at all. Um I, I love the use of texture in this movie. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of texture, the facility that everybody is in. It, it basically all happens in this one same building. The facility itself is, is kind of drab. There's like not much going on in the surroundings. Like there's a few platted plants, um, and some dusty windows and not much else. So it starts off very deceptively simple with a lot of people kind of like sitting across a table and having a conversation with each other. Um, but the descriptions that the deceased use to describe their favorite memories are so tactile. Like there's a lot of talk about like a cigarette or somebody like who's remembering a time when they really, really were craving salt or like the way that the moonlight glints off like a pair of railroad tracks or something like there's, there's a lot of focus on the way that something Looks and feels. And then as the movie goes on, I feel like it kind of starts to fold in a lot of those experiential things into the filmmaking as well. But it primes you for it first. Like there's a very heavy thoughtfulness here about we're going to be talking about memory, but first you have to be prepared for the way that you need to be able to experience this in order to be able to experience it the way that these people first experienced those memories when they were making them does that make sense?
1: Yeah I you know it's it's funny um the different ways that Corrada and Koganada evoke the the tactility and the experiential nature of memory, because the, their approaches are completely different. Mm-hmm. Coconut has kind of this very heavily impressionistic style, um, and the style in Afterlife uh, is what was really striking to me this time around was the almost documentary-like feel of it. Yeah, it's, it begins with interviews. the The setting is is very the setting in the way that Correia. Shoots it all is very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. This is not. This is not an afterlife that feels like an afterlife. It feels kind of like you know the the people who are helping recreate these memories are kind. Of, it's a job for them. They they kind of have to, you know, they they only have access to certain kinds of airplanes to recreate this one person's memory. <laughs> yeah. So they kind of have to jerry rig the wings on there a certain way in order to make it match more closely. And all these kind of very mon almost mundane details i think paradoxically work to enhance the loveliness of the uh recreation of these memories and the loveliness of how it views personhood and and what gives a life meaning i guess
0: yeah it almost like i feel like there might be a spectrum of like business after like life or after death or whatever and like on one end of the spectrum you get like the good place, which is very heightened and like candy colored and very artificial. And then you get something like afterlife where there's, there is a, there is a level of artificiality that's happening here, but it's all on the surface, right? Like all of the, all of the workers afterlife who are working to like recreate these memories aren't trying to like deceive anybody or anything. They're just trying to be as faithful as possible to that memory that they've been given. Um, and I was struck by the way that, the deceased almost were like the directors of their own little mini films. Like there's, there's a moment where you mentioned that there's an airplane that they're sort of trying to jerry rig so that it looks like a slightly different airplane. Um, And then they get this person into the plane and they have him like, think about how clouds would look like, like when they're coming at him and they try a couple of different things and the first solution doesn't work, so they try something else out. Um, And you don't ever actually see this memory in particular, I think, but what's important is not the audience getting to see that memory being recreated, it's that they get to see it being recreated. Um, And it's just, it, it felt so special because there's this level of attention to detail that isn't so focused on the artificiality of things but on bearing witness to a life well lived even if the details of that life are very small
1: bearing witness i think is synonymous for creator with filmmaking mm-hmm. Th- this is basically a movie about making movies that's what yeah. the uh the people recreating these memories for the deceased are doing they are they are filmmakers first and foremost and a lot of that is kind of mundane, like, you know, problem solving, kind of figuring out uh, creative solutions. But it's all in the service of number one, creating something they, mm-hmm. they create, uh, or in this case, recreate something that is wholly new and uh, or not wholly new, but um, uh, wholly distinct and very meaningful. And it's all in service of bearing witness to a person's life. You know, and the people they're working with—they're not—they're not important necessarily. They're not really all that remarkable. There's one of the major supporting characters is this guy who worked for his entire life uh, as, a, you know, an office worker at a steel company, mm-hmm. and he has a really hard time selecting a memory that he wants to recreate and kind of take with him into the great beyond because he feels like he didn't really do anything with his life his life was dull it was he, he doesn't really know what would constitute a meaningful memory mm-hmm. and I think the the miracle of this film is it kind of just uh, over the course of it it shows the audience that what makes something meaningful isn't uh, you know, what outer what grand outer effects it has it, it's, it matters like the effects that it has on you personally and maybe even more importantly the effect that you had on other people mm-hmm. it's in, in a weird way it's a very Christian film in in that sense the the sense that you know the smallest the last shall be first the you know the, the very small things are the important things and what the world calls important isn't important at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think this kind of uh, crystallizes something that I was thinking about about this movie too. I guess spoilers for a movie that's been out since 1998. Um, all of the workers who are working to recreate these memories are all people who have also died themselves and who were unable to select a memory. And so because they haven't been able to come up with something to essentially sum up their life. They're kind of living in service of other people's lives and bearing witness to something that they themselves weren't really quite able to do. So I'm curious to know your read. There's another, um, supporting character, uh, Isaiah, I think he's, he's a 21 year old, like kind of a punk a little bit <laughs> who straight up refuses, um, to select a memory. Like he's just, he's unable to do it. Um, and i was curious to know like if you saw parallels between him and um oh shoot what was her name there's there's another character who who kind of feels like him but like at a later like at a later stage uh in her in her journey in the afterlife
1: uh, shiori uh, yeah shiori yeah yeah um yeah so i i think that each one of these deceased people is interesting in their own distinct way and i think mm-hmm. Uh, this this young man Isaiah is just so it, it, it's he he just feels very young and yes. <laughs> I think the the one of the fascinating things about the version of the afterlife that Coriade gets us is the difference between a person who has died very young mm. and has not had the chance to live as much and form as many memories as somebody who has lived for quite a long time mm-hmm. the difference between those two things and the difference in the quality of their experiences and the, the differences in the way they're able to just think about their own personal histories about mm. what's important and about what what what's meaningful. For Isaiah, it's it's almost like he refuses to pick a memory because it's sort of an anti-establishment like, you're yeah. not gonna tell me what to do. Uh-huh. And that's just such it's such a <laughs> like uh, I, I think he, he's literally like 21 in this. And so it's mm-hmm. it's such like a you know a, a, a self-satisfied like college student person who's just like, I'm just gonna I'm getting you know, one
0: over on the man. <laughs> yeah,
1: like yeah, I, I'm I I follow the beat of my own drummer and that's great. And you know, the way Ada films them again it's this it's a pseudo documentary style and because it's set side by side with these other people who are um looking back at their lives with with more regret more mixed feelings more um more genuine um warmth for what what they've had happen to them i i just think that's it's really instructive and at the risk of bring up a cliche it's it's the rich tapestry of human experience like <laughs> it, it captures so many different ways of being human that i i think it's just it's wonderful to just kind of sit with it and also kind of ask yourself you know which one of these characters do i resemble most mm. uh and what memory might might i pick if if i were in that situation and i think that's a, a really stimulating question to think about
0: yeah there's also an interesting um generation gap i think because isaiah is is 21 so he would have been born in don't check my math on this but at some point during the 70s like by the movie's timeline and so many of the other characters who have died and are selecting their memories are much older so they would have lived through world war ii and i think that there's that specter of war and regret um that kind of colors a lot of their experiences as well. Like so many of them have memories about like, it was just after the war. It was during the war. I was engaged to somebody and he never came back. Um, And I think that there's, there's kind of a, a, a richness to that regret because they've lived through it and they're looking back on it and like kind of seeing it against like the entire length of their lives. Um, I don't know if I had anything else meaningful to say about
1: that, but I, well, I think it gives it gives the the movie that a weight. Mm-hmm. I, the, the thing about Koreeda that I think is so amazing about the way he makes movies is his films on the surface can be so slight, like you know mm-hmm. they're they're about cute kids or you know, and for example, in this film, it's kind of you know there there are some touches that might seem a little bit twee, you know, like the. They, the the uh, deceased are led to the movie theater where they will view their memories by this you know this this you know this ragtag band that yeah. they're playing very inexpertly these <laughs> these instruments that they've just learned um, and so on the surface it, it seems kind of you know light and quirky but Korea in doing that is is using those elements to tell a story that is about in some cases deep regret deep trauma mm. and i don't know quite how he's able to so perfectly strike the balance without putting a foot wrong mm-hmm. but he does and i um it you can easily imagine another version of this film really laying it on thick with the you know with the person who feels so much regret or the the war, the 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 person who fell during the war, mm-hmm. who never got to reconnect with with his fiance. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I you know I I know and and this is something that we've talked about already, but Edson Oda's Nine Days, I feel mm-hmm. like is kind of that film where it's very similar, but where Nine Days really kind of lays leans on the you know the emotion and just you know what gives a life meaning. It's all very Heavy and heavy-handed and serious. I feel like this Correa's lighter touch deals with the same subject matter, but it feels so much less mannered and 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 effective.
0: Yeah, I think the difference between the two is that. Quirida like acknowledges the emotion and the heaviness, but he doesn't linger on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I, I wanted to like Nine Days a lot more than I did. Um, it's, a, it's a gorgeous looking movie and it's got an incredible like final scene, but there's so much of it that's just so wrapped up, I think in its own sense of heavy grief that it doesn't really know how to get out from underneath that weight. Um, and with this one, like you do need those lighter touches, or you need like the moment where somebody's just like kicking around the slush from snow that's gotten a little bit old. Like it gives a, it gives a, a deeper sense of texture to the movie, I think, that makes it feel a little bit more real.
1: I think it also speaks to how Correia was not so much interested in death as he was in in life. Yes, with this picture. So in a an interview that he gave, um, he talked about how. You know, the English title for this uh film is obviously afterlife, but in Japanese the the title's much closer to Wonderful Life. Mm. And that in turn mean, makes it not so much about like what happens to us after we die, and you know, where, where do we go after we die and and what you know what constitutes tragedy and, and death and, and death in life, and so it's about these people's histories and their lives Mm -hmm. and what made them wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I think viewing this film through that lens kind of opens it up and makes it so that you can appreciate the, um, the references to, to trauma and regret. um, But that's not really what the movie is interested in.
0: Yeah. They don't overshadow it at all. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we could talk about I, or at least I could talk about Koreeda forever. And this might not be the last time that Koreeda shows up on the watch list segment. Yep,
0: yeah, bring it on. Give <laughs> give me some more Koreeda. The only other movie of his I've seen is Shoplifters, so I'm curious to to dive into his filmography a little bit more. All right,
1: well, we'll we'll definitely keep that in the back pocket for later, L- listeners. That was our discussion on Hirokazu Koreeda's 1998 film Afterlife. If you get the chance to see this film. I would highly recommend it. It's currently airing on the Criterion channel, so you can <laughs> stream it that way. Or if you're the sort of person who likes the you know, physical media, you can find the uh, physical release uh, from the Criterion collection. It just came out uh, about six months ago. So it is just, it's waiting for you, and it's wonderful. So highly recommend you check it out. Um, but for now, that is our episode. Uh, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLeneth, my co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes,
0: and check out our other shows at christinpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.